0: No one likes to sacrifice. It's not easy to give something up, even when the thing we stand to gain is of greater value than what we must surrender. Given its difficulty, we may decide to reject sacrifice, opt out, but choosing not to sacrifice is an illusion. You're always watching something burn on the altar of priority. You're always making some kind of trade. This is a story about the inevitability of sacrifice. It's a story about the foolishness of nearsightedness and the wisdom of remembering that what matters most may not be what's right in front of you. I'm Justin Gearhart, welcome to Holy Ghost stories. Ascended on the city of Jerusalem and with it the army of the Babylonians they've come in their hundreds and in their thousands their bronze swords and spears and double axes shining in the silvery January Sun change looms on the horizon not just here but around the world the kingdoms of earth are shifting A growing appetite for new ideas, for novel religions, proliferates, especially in the East. Soon Lao Tzu will establish a religious philosophy centered on the Tao, the so-called impersonal source and substance of everything. Not long now, and Siddhartha Gautama, founder of Buddhism, will be born on the edge of the Himalayas. What does Yahweh think of all of this? What feelings arise in him as he watches the world and the hearts of its people turn? One thing we know, he's decided the time has come for revival. And if his people will not choose it, then it must be provoked. Babylon encircles the Judean capital like a noose. Every gate, every access point, every crack in the walls is under guard. Nebuchadnezzar's troops have disallowed entry and exit. Severed supply lines started the grim countdown. Jerusalem is under siege. It's a classic strategy, of course. In time, if everything goes according to plan, the city's food stores will run low, morale will weaken, citizens will starve. The troops will breach the walls, and Babylon will stand victorious over the rubble of her enemy. Again, 26 years ago, Nineveh, the last stronghold of the great Assyrian empire, fell to Babylon. A few years after that, Egypt was defeated at Carchemish by Babylon. The next year, Ashkelon, that great Philistine city, broke under the might of Babylon, and then. Ten years ago, Babylon laid siege, just like this, to Jerusalem, defeating Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, carrying all but the poorest residents off into captivity, and installing a 21-year-old puppet king to rule over what was left of the Hebrews, and to send tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. That king is still on the throne, such as it is. Zedekiah is his name. Three years ago, he decided that Mesopotamia and the great king Nebuchadnezzar were too far away to worry about, switched allegiance to Egypt, and stopped sending tribute to the Chaldeans in Babylon. Now he's regretting that decision. This is what Yahweh says. The words echo off Jerusalem's trembling walls. It's the prophet. He's walking through the streets with fire in his eyes, shouting the same message again and again. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, and plague. But whoever surrenders to the Chaldeans will live. He will keep his life like the spoils of war and will live some tremble at Jeremiah's words and start making plans to escape the city that night. Others whisper about the grim forecast to their neighbors. Children ask their mothers what that man means and if it's true. But Shephatiah, one of the king's officials, has had enough. He and his three colleagues, Gedaliah, Jehuka, and Pashur. These constant messages of doom have to stop. They're trying to defend the city, and this so-called prophet of Judah with the Babylonian army literally at the door, he's telling people to defect, saying that Nebuchadnezzar is going to win and openly encouraging Israelites to surrender. It's time, they agree, to do something about this. This man ought to die, they say it almost in unison. All four men staring down the king without much regard for the formalities of rank. Zedekiah swallows, and they continue their case. This man ought to die because he is weakening the morale of the warriors who remain in this city and all of the people by speaking to them in this way. This man is not seeking the well being of this people, but disaster. They wait, demanding an immediate response. Zedekiah never asked to be king, never aspired to it, even though his father Josiah ruled as one of the greatest kings Judah ever had. People still tell stories about Josiah all these years later, tales about the good old days when Israel stood strong and could be sure of Yahweh's presence and protection. But for Zedekiah, his father's righteous legacy feels more like an albatross than anything else. These are different times, wedged between greater powers like Egypt and Babylon. What are you supposed to do? You have to compromise. You have to make nice with whoever's breathing down your neck. Because someone always is. And now that someone is for someone's. Officials, no less. Not to mention the Babylonian army, of course, and that prophet. Every one of them making demands, every one of them pressuring him from a different direction. What's he supposed to do? What he does is this. Zedekiah listens to the loudest voice, the one breathing down his neck. He's learned how to get by. What matters most is what's right in front of you. And right now... That's Shephatiah, Gedaliah, Jehuka, and Pashur. Killing a prophet seems a bad business. But if Zedekiah doesn't agree, these four will just keep at it. They'll nag and bully him for long enough, accuse him of being soft. He'll eventually have to concede. There's no sense in delaying it. Fine, go, he says. He's in your hands, since the king can't do anything against you. And with that, Zedekiah turns a blind eye. So the officials go and forcibly abduct Jeremiah. They can't bring themselves though to kill Yahweh's prophet So they grab a bunch of ropes and wrap them around Jeremiah, drag him to the guard's courtyard where the king's son Malchiah has a cistern, a subterranean holding tank for water, 15, maybe 20 feet deep, pear-shaped, wider at the bottom and narrowing to a ground-level opening two or three feet in diameter. Rain has been scarce, and there's no water in it, just a generous layer of muck at the bottom. They untie Jeremiah push the ropes under his armpits and loop them around a couple of times, and then shove him over the edge of Malchiah's cistern. The Prophet's body thuds back against the inside wall of the pit, and they start lowering him down his skin scraping against the stone until the bottleneck widens, further, further, the rough cords raking slowly across the tender flesh of his underarms. And then, finally, his feet touch the slime. As the pain in his now-raw armpits subsides at last, his toes sink down into the frigid sludge. Then his ankles. The stinking filth reaches further up his legs, maybe to his knees. It's so dark down there, it's almost impossible now for them to see him. Perfect. Meanwhile, the siege is taking its toll on the people of Jerusalem. Starvation threatens as food stores dwindle. Fresh water is a constant concern and everyone knows how likely an outbreak of disease is in a city locked behind its own walls. The Judean soldiers, of course, are employing all the military countermeasures they can, but to no effect. As the waiting drones on, Jerusalem reaches a grim milestone. No more bread. The reserves of barley, wheat, They're all gone. Now, panic begins to take hold. Horrible as it is, this new load does provoke the release of Jeremiah. A concerned administrator comes to Zedekiah and advocates for the prophet of Yahweh, says he'll die in that pit without bread, pleads and contends. And what's Zedekiah supposed to do? Fine. What's most important is what's right in front of you. Deal with him and then move on to the next pressing thing. It's just a constant barrage of voices and urgencies for Zedekiah. And so Jeremiah is pulled out of Malchiah's cistern back into the center of the blockaded city still chained but captive at least above ground perhaps he sends someone to check on his mother or his father if they're still alive perhaps he sends word to a neighbor with the location of a cache of food he hid before his imprisonment tells them to enjoy it one luxurious meal for their family yahweh has taught him that courageous generosity is not as risky as it seems certainly he prays he prays for Jerusalem he prays for the king and perhaps he thinks back as he wonders if this is the end the end of the city the end of its people the end of him his time as a prophet perhaps he thinks back to the moment he heard those fateful words from Yahweh I chose you before I formed you in the womb I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. A prophet? He was practically a boy, still in his early 20s. What did he know about speaking to the nations? He'd argued just that, in fact. Said he couldn't do it. Argued with God himself. He'd never do that now. But Yahweh had been so patient. Do not say, I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you. That's what he'd said. And he had so many times. When he'd spoken out at Yahweh's direction against corruption in the priesthood, making enemies in high places, when he'd been beaten and locked in the stocks by Pashur years ago for speaking the inconvenient truth, even in that pit. What was it Yahweh told him that day, all those years ago? Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you. A fortified city, a bronze wall, an immovable fortress in the middle of a city under siege. What an absurd, undeniable truth after all the hostility from those with no desire for Yahweh's words, after all the beatings and the mocking and the imprisonment, all who'd fought against him had not overcome. Here Jeremiah stands, feet firmly planted, eyes locked on the one who's always, always been with him, the one he'd trade anything for. Days pass, weeks, months maybe. The army of Babylon still camped around the city, building towers out there even. Still defecating on Israel's land. The odd Judean defender gets picked off from a parapet by a well-aimed Babylonian arrow. Starvation takes its toll on the most fragile in Jerusalem. Children and their great-grandparents die. Mothers, driven mad by their hunger, look at their babies with ravenous eyes, light a fire, and do the unthinkable. The invaders shout insults and hurl diseased animal carcasses over the walls war is bad enough but war in slow motion it's horrific winter gives way to spring spring gives way to summer the heat rises panic and chaos crescendo finally his city at its breaking point king zedekiah reaches a new level of desperation He sends for Jeremiah and meets him at the entrance to the temple. The temple. That dream of David's brought to life by Solomon. A dwelling place for the shepherd, poet, warrior, king's first love, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the great I Am. His presence emanating from the Holy of Holies right there in the center of the temple, not because he needed shelter, but because, almost as a favor to the wise King Solomon and his old friend David, he chose to make the temple his home. It's the temple, as much as anything else, that stands to be lost in this siege. Zedekiah knows what the Babylonians will do to it if they get their hands on it. They'll rip it down. Stone by stone, piece by piece, the fragrant cedar lining the walls with its carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and flowers overlaid with gold. So beautiful. To be in the temple was to be confused as to whether you were in heaven or on earth. The olive wood doors of the Holy of Holies and the olive wood cherubim inside, 15 feet tall, each with a 15-foot wingspan, And the ark of the covenant containing the ten commandments and aaron's miraculously budding rod and the last of the manna from the wilderness yahweh's precious scrapbook of memories from his earliest days with the hebrew nation zedekiah knows what will happen to yahweh's temple if nebuchadnezzar takes the city if jerusalem burns But right now, the king has more pressing problems, like public opinion and the approval of his officials. At the foot of the temple, the king confronts Jeremiah, both men gaunt and weak. I am going to ask you something, Zedekiah says. Don't hide anything from me. He can't afford for the aging prophet to keep something back because he's afraid of ending up in a cistern again. He doesn't want Jeremiah saying what the king wants to hear just because he's breathing down Jeremiah's neck. He doesn't even get to ask the question, though. Jeremiah knows what he wants. Of course he wants to know if Judah has a chance against Babylon even now. Jeremiah's eyes narrow, his face wrinkling with disdain. If I tell you, you will kill me, won't you? He says to the king. Besides, If I give you advice, you won't listen to me anyway. If Jeremiah makes to leave, the king doesn't let him. Zedekiah takes the prophet aside where they won't be overheard and swears an oath to him. As Yahweh lives, I will not kill you or hand you over to those who intend to take your life. Jeremiah looks at Zedekiah, king of a doomed city, almost accomplice to the murder of God's prophet, Monarch for 11 years now, but still not strong enough to stand up and enforce an unpopular decision But perhaps With this one final chance Perhaps he can be the man Yahweh is calling him to be Zedekiah listens as Jeremiah finally speaks This is what the Lord the God of hosts the God of Israel says if indeed you surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then you will live. This city will not be burned down, and you and your household will survive. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city will be handed over to the Babylonians. They will burn it down, and you yourself will not escape from them. Zedekiah's face falls His mind races, doing the complicated math people do when they try to make decisions based on how they think their critics might behave. I'm afraid, he confesses to Jeremiah. I'm afraid that they'll just hand me over to the Judeans who've already defected, the ones who've lost their homes because of me. The Babylonians will hand me over to them and and they'll abuse me. He trembles as he says it. A tear gathers in his eye and spills down his cheek, burying itself in his beard. They will not hand you over, Jeremiah says, offering a precious bit of good news. And then, fixing his eyes on the king, no doubt wondering if perhaps this is it, if perhaps this is the moment Zedekiah finally makes the right choice, if this is where he heeds the word of Yahweh and leads his subjects to do the same. If this is when, at long last, Zedekiah lifts his eyes to the horizon and makes a brave sacrifice, something hard for something good, surrender now for victory, at least survival, later. Jeremiah says, offering plea and command and prophecy in one sentence, Obey the voice of Yahweh in what I am telling you, so that it may go well for you and you can live. If you do not all your family will be brought out to the Babylonians you yourself will not escape he glances at the temple the tears now gathering in his eyes and then looks back at the king this city will burn down silence Zedekiah's mind races He weighs his options, crunches the numbers and complicated equations. What's he supposed to do? Finally, his brow lowers, his lips narrowing into a hostile line. He looks at the prophet and says, don't let anyone know about these things or you will die. And just like that, Zedekiah finally seals not only his fate, but that of the entire city. He decides to hold on, to hold out, to dig in, to save face, and to keep up momentary morale, to turn a blind eye to the difficult command of Yahweh. After all, he has to live with his officials and the people. They're breathing down his neck, and they don't want to surrender. The Babylonians are way out there, and and the secret to getting by is simple. What matters most is what's right in front of you. Eventually, like a tsunami, like a giant wave that's been building out at sea for hours, hurtling toward the coast, it happens. Babylon comes crashing down into and on top of Jerusalem. No one will record exactly how it happens, what finally triggers it, but it happens. Soldiers come flooding into the city one night with months and months of pent up violent energy. Blood runs red in the gutters as Babylon's men cut down one Israelite after another stepping over the corpses of those who've already starved to death. As soon as Zedekiah gets word that they've breached the walls, he and his soldiers flee. Under the cover of darkness, they sneak out of the city through his garden, past the withered fig trees and through an unwashed gate. They head east down from the heights of Jerusalem toward the Dead Sea but the Babylonians get wind of Zedekiah's escape and give chase overtaking him and his beleaguered soldiers on the plains of Jericho where there is nowhere to hide they arrest him and bring him to Nebuchadnezzar who decides his fate it's a simple horrible sentence first Shephatiah, Gadaliah, Jehuca, Pashur and the rest of the officials in Zedekiah's court are brought out before him and while he's forced to look on they are one by one executed then Malchiah, Zedekiah's son, captured in the defeat is brought out in chains and to the soundtrack of his own screams Zedekiah watches his son, slaughtered. And as his eyes adjust to the burning flow of tears, Zedekiah makes out the shapes of his other sons, every one of them. Unable to turn away, he watches as Nebuchadnezzar kills them all, stealing the light from their eyes, like the spoils of war. bodies of his children sprawled on the ground. It's true once again, in a new and horrible way, that what matters most to Zedekiah is what's right in front of him. And then, with a macabre flourish, Nebuchadnezzar turns the blade on Zedekiah. But not to kill him. Instead, he gouges out each of the deposed king's eyes so that the death of his sons will be the last thing he ever sees. The Babylonians bind Zedekiah with chains and turn his blind eyes east toward Babylon, where he'll live out the rest of his days among his exiled people. the ones he didn't have the courage to save. The chained Israelites plod en masse away from their beloved Jerusalem, driven like cattle by the captain of Nebuchadnezzar's guard. But eight miles north in Ramah, suddenly the captain stops the march and strides over to one of the prisoners, a man, haggard and hollow-cheeked like the rest, but with fire in his eyes. And then, his own eyes aflame, as if possessed by some unseen force, Nebuchadnezzar's man says, Yahweh, your God, decreed this disaster. And at the order of Jeremiah's God, Jeremiah is unshackled. You're free to choose, says the captain. Come to Babylon, where you'll be taken care of as a guest, or stay in Judah. Judah then, it's Jeremiah's home, and he has memories there with an old friend. The prophet steps out of line and watches his people walk away. Meanwhile, Jerusalem burns, its temple and the Holy of Holies itself aflame, the smoke rising skyward like a sacrifice. Hey, Justin here. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to share this podcast with a friend, I'd love for you to do that. Text somebody and get them on board. And to those of you who've left reviews, I can't thank you enough. They're so kind. You have no idea how much joy it's brought to me to hear from you. Thanks. A new episode of Holy Ghost Stories drops every other Monday. Subscribe so you don't miss anything. In the meantime, you can find out more about me and about this podcast at holyghoststories.org. Till next time.